Derek M. Cook, the producer and host of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. How's everybody doing? I want to welcome you to episode 13 of Monster Kid Radio. And this week, we are covering one more Ray Harryhausen classic. This is week three of our Ray Harryhausen tribute series, the final week in our series of covering Ray Harryhausen films. If you want more Ray Harryhausen goodness, head over to the B-Movie cast. Go check those guys out because they've been doing the Ray Harryhausen series as well. Now, on this week's episodes, we're talking about 20 Million Miles to Earth with author Edward J. Russell. So you can look forward to that. I'm excited for it. This is a movie that I am so glad that I got a chance to revisit with one of the most iconic creatures in the Ray Harryhausen bestiary. The music that you heard at the top of the show was the song Escape from Nebula M Space Hunter from the band Daikaiju appears on their album Phase 2 and appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio by permission of the band. You can find out more about them over at their website at daikaiju.org. That's D-A-I-K-A-I-J-U dot org. If you do contact the band, either their website or on their Facebook page, tell them that Monster Kid Radio sent you. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group, so look us up over there. We have some conversations happening over in the group page, and we appreciate all the likes you give the Monster Kid Radio page over on Facebook. And, of course, you can reach us over there or by email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or by voicemail, 503-479-5MKR. All of this is available on our website at monsterkidradio.net. I want to give you a sneak preview in the episode that comes out in two days, episode 14. We're announcing a contest, the very first contest here at Monster Radio, so you'll want to come back for that here in a couple of days. Between now and then, I hope you enjoy part one of our conversation with Edward J. Russell about 20 Million Miles to Earth, which we'll get to right after this. Humanity is hanging by a thread. Society has broken down. The undead have risen and are taking over by tooth and claw. The unlucky few who have survived are coming together throughout the country, but these factions do not trust one another. TheDeadInfested.com Ward Wilson has managed to secure a small compound and is trying to stabilize his community, but there are others who covet what he has. They crave his power, his food, his ammo, and his security. They're willing to do whatever it takes to possess it. The remnants of a well-armed and motivated military unit, a nomadic biker gang devoid of rules and morals, and the struggling citizens of Ward's compound are all set to clash when a stranger appears. A stranger who just might be the key to what has happened and the answer humanity desperately needs. Also available at Amazon.com. Read the first 20% for free at Smashwords.com. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'd like to welcome to the show a man who, if you've listened to podcasts before, you might remember his voice. He was one of the guys, one of the men behind the Plan 9 from Cyberspace podcast, and now he's an author. We've got Edward Russell on the phone. How's it going, Ed? Hello. Hey, it's going great. It's nice to be here. Definitely, man. It's been a long time since we've heard you on a podcast. How have things been? It's been going really well. I've been keeping busy, and uh, I graduated college. Only Woo-hoo. took two years, but uh, I got through that. <laughs> nice. And you've been busy writing? Yes. All right. I've so two books out there, and I'm working on a third and a fourth at the same time. Oh, wow. 
So I want I want people to know where they can find your stuff. So let's mention it real quick. Your first book, your debut novel, The Dead uh, Infested, Second Bane, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's a and zombie it's novel? available on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle for 99 cents. So. Now, is there a dead or perhaps undead tree version as well out there? Yes. You can get print or Kindle, yeah. Excellent, excellent. And then we also have an anthology, right? Well, sort of. It's got three short stories and a novella in it, and it's called Flaws and Claws. And I, I was trying to do sort of a horror comedy thing so that the, the first and the last stories are meant to be more funny, and the two in the middle are just straight-up horror stories. Because I'm a big big fan of uh, the horror comedies like um, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, Army of Darkness, things like that. I wanted to try and, and mix the two. And because that was my graduating year, uh, I didn't have as much time to write. So I put that together and put it out there. I, I really think the first story is, is very funny. And the final story has zombies in it. So you can't really go wrong with that. Right on, man. Well, you say you love horror comedies, but then when I put the call out, you know, who wants to talk about a classic movie? You don't bring up this this classic horror comedy, but you bring up 20 Million Miles to Earth, which is just a science fiction adventure kind of thing. Right. It's one of uh, the Harryhausens. I just love all of those movies. They had such an impact as a kid. Out of all the, the genres out there, the, the giant monster are by far my favorites. Now, do they have to be American giant monsters, or do you get into the kaiju yeah, films as well? Or Not at all. I, I love all the, the Godzilla, the Gamera. If I can understand what's going on, and it's got a big man in a suit, I love it. <laughs> or even better, if it's the stop motion. I mean, Harryhausen stuff just has that, that unique look and style that it feels different. You know it's not real, but it's a fantasy escape. And it's something that I think the, uh, the CGI doesn't have the same charm. Hmm. You know, there, there is an otherworldliness, especially when he's doing like the big monsters, because clearly they're not of this world, that sort of thing. But uh, he still manages to imbue a certain sense of life in it. There, there's a couple of shots in this movie, for example, when the big creature is unconscious, yet it's still yeah. breathing. The body is still moving. There's still a sense of, of warmth coming from this thing. And you're right. I think with the CG stuff, when it's done spot on perfect, you can get that, but it's so hard to do that spot on perfect. Yeah. And I think we're kind of jaded now as, as audience members and, and movie viewers and TV viewers, we expect to see that kind of thing. So it kind of, I don't know, there's a disconnect for me because we see it so much now for the CG. And, and you know, I just saw a thing yesterday that I, I didn't realize how much CG is in everything. Somebody posted a, a thing on Facebook and shows that you watch that, that are not sci-fi or horror, just everyday cop shows. Uh, like, like a, for an example, an episode of Monk, you, you see him and the captain uh, on the street talking about something and a trolley car goes by. You figure, okay, that's San Francisco, that's normal. Then you, you see the green screen and there's nothing there. It's just the two of them talking. I didn't realize that half the cityscape behind him was always CG. It's everywhere now. You know, when I learned things like that, and I've seen that with, uh, like you said, the cop shows, a lot of the, the procedurals, uh, the CSI style, you know, a lot of it's all enhanced by visual effects in the background, sometimes in the foreground. I, yeah. always, I always feel robbed when I learn that. I, I 
guess I just like the idea that if they're in a big city shooting something, that they go and take over a city block and shoot. Not that they've got something set up with a set or green screen set up behind them or whatever. I just feel disappointed somehow. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's the same thing. And I miss the, we call it practical effects. I miss the puppets, the Stan Winston stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, you mentioned this is one of the Harryhausens. I think when it comes to the stop-motion monsters, Harryhausen was and is one of the best. I mean, I know he wasn't the first. And, you know, we got to give credit to, like, O'Brien from King Kong and things like that. But when it comes to creating these iconic creatures that just have so much life and depth and movement, we got to look at Harryhausen. Well, yeah, and I think the reason we have all these is because he was so into it. If he hadn't been inspired by King Kong and his whole goal was to make movies with these creatures in them, we wouldn't have these type of movies, all the Sinbads and uh, 20 Million Miles to Earth. That was his thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, it's pretty clear that a movie like this was created, was designed to kind of showcase Harryhausen's work. But, you know, it, it was directed by Nathan Duran. You know, there, there are some actors and actresses in this we probably want to talk about. Uh, the movie came out in 1957. And this was not the first Harryhausen. I mean, this is kind of right in the middle of a lot of the Harryhausen stuff, right? Yes. Is this one of your favorite Harryhausen, son? No, I would have to say that the Sinbads are my favorite because, Ah. uh, you know, the adventure. There are so many creatures in there. But this one is very different in that the monster is somewhat sympathetic throughout the film. Uh, He really doesn't purposely kill anyone toward the very end, and that's sort of a defensive action, really. It's misunderstood, and what sets this film apart for me is no one really ever tries to understand the creature at all. He's just a tool. You know, we can find out from him how to breathe on Venus, and once we figure that out, okay, we don't need him anymore. Shoot him up, boys. Right, exactly. Uh, There is a I I don't know if that's a commentary on what the military was like or what science was like back then or or what, but yeah, there's definitely this, this sense of sympathy that you genuinely feel bad for the guy. And you mentioned, you know, the men in suits and the Godzilla films towards the end of this movie. I started feeling like, you know, there is some between what's happening here and at the end of Godzilla. I mean, I know in Godzilla, he's destroying everything. He's a you know big beast of destruction, but when Godzilla dies at the end of the original Godzilla, there's still this sense of, you know, he really couldn't help himself. He just is being what he is, and it's almost kind of sad. And there's this sense of sadness as this creature is being destroyed at the end of this movie as well. It just really kind of hits you like, wow, it's not his fault. Yeah, they go out of their way to show you that this thing really, whether they meant to or not. I mean, there's that one scene with the uh, with the lamb. The, the first time I saw this, I was sure, oh, he's going to scoop that thing up and eat it. And no, they just kind of squeal back and forth at each other, and then he walks away. Yeah, there's that, and then it, it only gets, really gets overly aggressive when it's attacked, uh, and it's attacked by a dog at one point. And, yeah. you know, nor, I, I'm, I'm an animal person. I love pets. I feel bad when I see a dog getting hurt or killed in a movie. I mean, I know it's not real, but I still, you know, you get that kind of instant kind of heartstring pulling when you see something bad happen to a, to a domesticated animal, and... In particular case, I felt like the dog started it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the dog does what a dog does. It, it was defending its property. And, uh, you know, the death of the dog, if it definitely died, which I think there might be a little question on that. Right, you do hear it kind of yelp. The way that is yeah. shown, that's all in shadow. 
you don't see him actually harm the dog. You see the dog jump on him, then they fall behind the haystack, and the battle between the two is all done in shadow, mm-hmm. stop-motion shadow, mm-hmm. which I think, I could be wrong, but I think this is the only movie that has that in it. Like a stop-motion shadow thing? Yes. I think I've seen that uh, in Clash of the Titans, you see the shadow of the Medusa along the floor at one point. Yeah, you're right. It's it's not, when you think stop-motion, you don't think shadow play. And in this right. case, because of what we're seeing, it's even worse because you're just seeing the shadows of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think you're right. The the dog does yelp, and then there's also the creature fights an elephant. And when the elephant, you assume the elephant's going to die or is dead, but the last time you see the elephant, it's actually still breathing as well. And I wonder if that was uh, in, intentional to keep the kids from crying because the animals died. I don't know if they worried about that back then. I mean, this movie, it lacks so much focus in so many areas, but yet... It, it still holds up and it's entertaining. I mean, there, there's no real goal of it. With most of the big monster movies, uh, the monster is a problem. It's tearing stuff up. We got to get rid of it. We're defending ourselves. But in this case, we brought it back for a specific reason. And once we get that reason, we have no use for it anymore. I mean, they did their best to put a story around this whole thing. And, and yeah, we don't get into like a lot of in-depth plot analysis, but l- let's talk briefly about a, a spaceship comes crashing back to Earth. We don't know if it's alien or not. I mean, it's a sci-fi movie from the 50s, so you know somebody watching it for the first time might think it's from another planet. But really, it's just one of ours. Uh, it's an expedition to Venus that's on its way back and crashes into the ocean outside of Sicily. And it's brought back this little creature... That will eventually turn into our, our beast, which I believe is called an emir, even though I don't think that name ever comes up in the movie. Right. The, You're exactly right on that. Yeah. The, the emir, once it's exposed to our environment, for whatever reason, will eventually slowly grow and get, get out of control and start causing havoc and panic and taking Rome, because the story does take place in Rome, basically. I mean, it, it's in Sicily and, and that sort of thing, but mostly it's about the destruction of Rome. Yeah, I think this movie was made because Harry Halston wanted a trip to Rome. <laughs> he, he, he kind of a, he, he says that multiple times. I mean, not exactly that, but that he really wanted to always go to Rome. And uh, he and uh, Hopper got to go to Rome. They're the only two that went, and they, they went to Rome for this movie. <laughs> and uh, Hopper is our lead our leading man. Uh, yes, the Colonel. Right, it's William Hopper plays Colonel Robert Calder, and... He is cut from this leading man, you know, the the chiseled features, the blonde hair cloth. He is clearly our leading man in this movie. And and he's the only survivor from the air, you know, the spaceship, maybe because he's the best looking. And, yep. <laughs> and he's the one that knows what happens when you go to Venus and what they brought back and he was in charge of everything. He doesn't get to enjoy his hero's return home, his hero's welcome though because you know the Amir is out. And that sort of thing. Uh, we do have a little bit of a relationship between him and Marissa, played by Joan Taylor, who I really like as an actress. I mean, Joan Taylor's come up in Earth vs. the Flying Saucers and a few other things. And I'm actually quite taken by her now. <laughs> and she is unimaginably thin, isn't she? Some of those early scenes when she's by the um, the trailer mm-hmm. and she's got that old wasp waist. You wonder if the woman ate more than a strawberry every day. <laughs> She's so thin around the middle, it's unbelievable. For 
this era as well, I was a little, I mean, I know historically Hollywood's always been about making sure the women look good. I mean, and I get that, but for this era, she is much thinner than most leading ladies from this type of movie or this era. Yeah. You know, she's very slender, very slim, but I really liked her. I mean, like I said, I'm quite taken by Joan Taylor these days. So, I mean, she's not going to bump Julie Adams off my, my list of potential fifties girlfriends, but well, she did show the most range of anybody in this as well. Well, that's true too. As an actress, I think as a performer, you know, she does everything. I mean, she gets to scream. You, You see her flirting with the Colonel. You see her yeah. having control over the colonel because she's also the one who's training to become a doctor. She pursues the colonel. <laughs> almost a doctor. Yeah, almost, Mrs. Almost a Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so she does as a character, she's probably the most well-rounded. You're absolutely right. Maybe that's why I'm so drawn to her in this movie. I want to back up one tiny step. You know, where the spaceship crashes, it's supposed to be Sicily, and they say it's a little farming village. They name that. Now, it always sounds to me like it's Jedi. Is that what you hear? <laughs> I don't know if that's what I heard the last time I watched this, but every time I watch it from now on, I'm sure I will. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Jedi to me. and I just wondered if anybody else caught that. I'll have to go back and they, watch. They don't show the name on the map, but that's what I hear the guy saying. Huh. And the general, he looks like a young Vince McMahon to me for some reason. Which I guess works because, you know, there is a big wrestling match at the end of it. <laughs> we're, we're talking about the, the, the major that's in charge. The Is that this Brown Henry who played that character? Or is that who we're talking about here? Yeah, but he's a general. Isn't he? I, the, the IMDb lists him as a major, but he's the higher. He's the uh, superior, the, the, the man in charge. But yeah, no, I could see that. Maybe a little bit of Vince McMahon in there. Sure. Okay. I'll, I'll roll with you and there. I, it just cracks me up because the first time we see him, he's looking at this uh, revolving planet thing. And it looks to me that in the middle of that is a ring bell. You know, the bell they ring for uh, wrestling and boxing matches. That's <laughs> what that thing looks like to me. And maybe that's subliminal so you know what's coming at the end. <laughs> sure. I'm sure that's exactly what they were thinking. <laughs> Uh, well, that's what I'm going to be thinking now. Next time I watch it, though, for sure, definitely. <laughs> and in this corner, we have... Oh, man. So even though it's set in Rome, it's clearly an American operation here. Although something else happens in this movie that I I had forgotten about the last time I had seen it, and then I noticed it this morning when I was watching it again. Even though it's clearly an American operation, you know, they get the American consulate involved and, and all that. Once the scientists are all involved at this Roman zoo... It's an international effort here. I mean, you've got the Japanese scientists and, you know, you've got all these other people here. And I, I had forgotten about that. And it felt genuine. It didn't feel like, well, we've got to make sure we've got a Japanese guy and this guy or whatever. It felt like, you know, this was an attempt to realistically portray what the world science community would be doing. It, it doesn't come off as, as forced at all. You're right. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the Japanese you know, doctor could have said, well, you know, when we fought Godzilla, this is what we did. But, you know. <laughs> Trademark. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, so this was a movie that was put out by Columbia, speaking of which. They're the ones that had the rights to this thing, and I believe they're the ones that did all the Harryhausen films from this era. So Harryhausen had a relationship with them. And, you know, when you think of the classic monster movies of the 50s, I think the first thing you think of are the big bugs. You know, Them, Tarantula, The Deadly Mantis, which also starred William Hopper. You, you think of those movies, but 
you know, as soon as you remember or you bring up Harryhausen, you can't help but think about things like this and Earth versus the Flying Saucers and things like that. So I'm really glad you mentioned bringing this one up because uh, I enjoyed revisiting this. It's been a long time since I had seen it. Well, it, it kind of stands out. Uh, the, the title itself, 20 Million Miles to Earth, never really makes sense. How so? Well, it, it is Venus 20 million miles? Possibly. But, but, but the movie's not about going there and getting back. The movie doesn't even start till they come back. Right. The, the going there and coming back already happened. You, you get the sense that there could be a story here with them all going to Venus and having encounters there and then coming back. But yeah. you know, maybe that, that'll be the prequel that somebody will make someday. Who knows? And, and I, I doubt it. They're remaking everything else. Yeah, that's so. true. <laughs> uh, at one point, though, they even mention uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Like, they just kind of throw that yeah. out there. Like, that's where the, the ship is now. So, yeah, I suppose the title does kind of, I don't know. It does sound like a sci-fi catchy title, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you that. But it, to me, at 20 million miles to Earth, that makes me, you know, just looking at the title, it makes me think, okay, these are people that are stranded away from Earth. Ah, Okay. This movie's not going to take place on Earth. It's going to take place somewhere else, and they need to get back. Gotcha. Okay. Now, that makes sense. I can see that. And, well, they, they sort of talk that in the future they're going to go back, and they want to go to Venus for minerals. There are a lot of, uh, I would have to assume gold, platinum, things like that, if they think they can get. Right. I was also taken with how easily the colonel was able to reintegrate into you know being on earth or, or getting to the earth environment again once they got back cuz don't they say in the press conference they were gone for was it 13 months yeah you would think at least i would think that especially with 1950s technology having been to venus and back cooped up in that little rocket there'd be a little bit more of an adjustment period for him being back on earth heck when we sent somebody to the moon and brought him back we put him in quarantine for a little while yeah you know so i would I would think there'd be a little bit more than just miss almost a doctor fixing him up and then moving on. Yeah, and just not even – not a doctor yet. Not quite a doctor. Right. You, you would think that they would have swarmed there, quarantined everybody, and had a massive debriefing. But no, it's like, okay, you're back. This thing got away. We got to go find it. We don't want to kill it. We need to catch it. Right, right. Which does become an issue with the Italian government because once it starts killing people, once it starts causing damage, now they want to kill it. And they're not really down with the whole American military science machine, let's capture it and learn from it. We just got to destroy this thing. So there is a little sense of a conflict, maybe kind of a race to see who gets it first. Although the Roman officials seem pretty incompetent about the whole thing. Yeah, they, they seem to be chasing it and then they just sort of disappear. Right, that whole part of the story just kind of falls aside. I like I like how they, you know, use the plot device that bullets won't hurt it because it, it doesn't really breathe. It doesn't have lungs or a circulatory system. Although we saw it breathing when it was unconscious. On the table, yeah. It's very, and plus they say the more it breathes our oxygen, the bigger it gets. Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of fuzzy science that you see in a lot of these lower tier science fiction movies and i don't mean that you know to discredit the movie but i mean this is a b movie through and through this was not aimed at you know adults or whatever it's that fuzzy kind of it doesn't have a heart it just has a series of tubes <laughs> oh okay well that answers yeah. that right but that's part of the charm yeah, that's you know? true and i'm not trying to i mean i feel like i've been a little critical of the movie and i'm not trying to be i actually really enjoyed the movie and i'm glad you picked it because it'd been so long since i had seen it and you know that this creature the emir was sort of the prototype for the Kraken. You think so? 
Well, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, he says that in the commentary, oh, okay. that, that he, he used that, um, that the face is sort of what um, became the Kraken's face. Well, and you can see that, too, in terms of the reptilian design, the skin texture, maybe even kind of how the hands and the arms move. You're absolutely right. It certainly has an aquatic feel to it, even though this thing's on land most of the time. You see it especially in the tail movement, the way the tail kind of moves. It moves as if it's swimming everywhere it's going. Yeah. What did you think of the Emir? Uh, I liked it as a creature. Um, it just sort of, well, we should say that the way this thing is introduced is there's a, a, a big pot of slime or goop, glop, whatever. <laughs> And in the black and white version, it almost looks like an elongated snowball sitting on the table. Okay. In the colorized version, you know, you get the green color, you start to get a feel that it's it looks much more alien in the colorized version. Right. And it just sort of pushes its way out of this goo, and then you've got something that looks like a little imp, or uh, I think he called it a hermunculus. Okay. And it grows from there, and... Yeah, it definitely has a uh, a reptilian, almost amphibian look and feel to it. Definitely very alien. Yeah, right off the bat, it definitely has that kind of, it feels like it's from an ocean or an oceanic environment, which is not what I associate with Venus, but... No, but fuzzy science, once again. And that's okay. We can accept that. And uh, the zoologist makes the comment that it has the body of a man. It, it definitely has a chest and arm muscles, and the legs work more like a, a biped than our reptilians that generally have four or no legs. Uh, in fact, I think all of them are that way. Do we have any six-leggeds now? I, I don't think so. I'm sure a listener can think of something, though, if we're missing it. So, no, and I, I liked how it moved. I, I thought from the chest up it did have a very you know humanoid look but i think harryhausen did a really good job with the way the legs move they don't move quite like how humans would move right i really did like that and, and the tail is completely independent and it seems to move naturally yeah the tail on this thing is not just an afterthought which in some of the Sinbads, I thought some of the creatures with tails, the, the tail was more of an afterthought. Oh, yeah, we got to move this, too. Okay. Which is a nitpick, but it's with just one creature to animate, he had more time to concentrate on it. Right. That's true. Yeah, there is only one monster in this. You're right. In some of the later movies, he starts piling them all on, like with the Sinbad movies. And, and the, um, the rocket ship itself, those were both also stop-motion animations. <sighs> You can kind of tell with the rocket ship. Um, I, I feel yeah. like when we see the flying saucers and Earth versus the flying saucers, it's a little bit more sophisticated. With this one, it did feel a little – it's not quite where his strength was. Right. It's one of the weakest animations, but it's a small segment, so. True. And that, that ship is so massive. It was huge. It's, it's, hum it's humongous. And when it, it cracks me up when it goes down – that, you know, as we all saw on Titanic, everybody, everything gets pulled down with it, but not in this No, movie. not at all. The guy can just swim away from it. And, and did you notice that the, the, the two astronauts were not in the boat when they were rowing Oh, away? no, I didn't. Yeah. They got the little boy rowing, Pepe. <laughs> and, uh, and apparently there were two, two actors that played Pepe. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, that's what I got from the commentary. There were two of them. Huh. One for the water scenes and one for the um, the interior shots where he's talking with the um, zoologist 
when he wants his lira. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how the the thing, the Ymir that's in this suspended glob of snow or or gel or whatever the heck it was, uh, makes its way from the military's uh, canister to well, freedom, and then able to run around. Is Pepe finds the in the wreckage? He finds the canister that's labeled USAF. And, and sells it to the zoologist, who apparently, you know, he's been stuff to the, to the zoologist this whole time, you know, a little later here, a little bit later there, just for whatever. And I, I get the impression that, you know, maybe there was this maybe kind of uncle-like relationship. I don't know. Yes. Uh, and, and it was kind of, you know, charming, although Pepe knows he probably did something wrong when, when the military shows up and starts asking questions. But he's still enough of a capitalist yep. that he takes – Advantage of what is it a million yeah as soon as there's money involved he's like yep i know where it's at i sold it to that guy now give me my money he gets his money yeah he writes him a check he starts (laughs) writing him a check writes him a check (laughs) yeah that's true so the kid makes out like a bandit he gets his cowboy hat and a cowboy that's right that's right because he wanted to have a cowboy hat from the country of texas from the country of texas (laughs) yeah which i'm thinking i've been kind of falling under the spell of spaghetti westerns lately so i'm thinking you're in italy yet the westerns that you guys are he's wanting to be part of are from you know our part of the country our part of the world you're in italy man that's where the spaghetti westerns are from come on you know but whatever now you know why he was so into it and had so much knowledge there there you go that's it Big thanks to Edward J. Russell for joining us here on this week's episodes of Monster Kid Radio. Come back in two days for part two of that discussion. And remember, we've got that contest coming up. I'm excited to share that with you guys and get you guys involved and give you an opportunity to win a Blu-ray. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0 unboarded license. That does not extend, however, to the song Escape from Nebula M Space Hunter from the album Phase 2 by the band Daikaiju. This song appears by permission of the band. Talk to you in a couple of days. (laughs) 